You're listening to Changemaker. Ideas on social impact. Lessons on life and business. Stories from people making a difference. I'm Jackie Biederman. A great CEO should know their numbers inside and out. Well, not Richard Branson. A few years ago, he told a story to the Washington Post that when he was around 50 years old is when he first learned the difference between net and gross. At this point, he had been leading Virgin for decades. Numbers aren't something that he's good at, and he knows that, so he gets help from people who are. A big part of Richard's success comes from being comfortable with who he is. And that's something that's hard, because we often mix who we are with who we wish we were, or who other people think that we should be. On today's show, we'll hear about the power of knowing yourself. Rachel Fowler is up against giants. She's the founder of Tonelay. It's a zero-waste clothing brand on a mission to change the fashion industry. Fast fashion is a trend that's happening with major brands. It's where they get the latest styles from the runway and mass-produce them as quickly and as cheaply as possible. They're at prices that are so low that we can buy more clothes more often. That's the $20 pair of pants in your closet or that $5 shirt that you only wear once. So we have access to all of these clothes, but how are they made? Let's start with the factory. You get this idea that a factory is like just this whole assembly line of amazing machines that are doing cool things. And, you know, yarn goes in one side and a t-shirt just pops out the other. When you grow up, you know, rationally, you know that's not the case, but I think that we still have this idea that a factory is a bunch of machines, maybe there's a few people operating the machines. But in the garment industry, most things are really done so manually still today. I mean, there's a lot of machinery that's involved in making these products, but someone sits in front of a sewing machine and sews every single t-shirt that you buy. And, uh, you know, there are ways to mechanize it more, but it's not done because labor is so cheap. If we look at the tags on our clothes, we can see where these factories are, but they're only part of the story. So when you buy a t-shirt and it says made in Cambodia, it's only what we call in the industry cut, make and trim CMT which is the cutting, the sewing, and the final details like printing or some uh, hand embroidery or something like that. That's the only thing that you see reflected on the tag is cut, make, and trim. But there were probably several different factories involved before it got to cut, make, and trim that you never even hear about. So most of the horrors that we are hearing right now are in the cut, make, and trim facilities, but they're far from the worst. You know, I, I think the, the most atrocities that are happening in the garment industry are actually happening in cotton farming and in, you know, spinning and milling and dyeing, and all of those don't even have, that, that has very little exposure to the public right now. And so even most brands in America, um, most brands cannot trace their supply chains past cut, make, and trim. I mean, it's a question of whether they can or whether they want to, I think. But even 50% of brands in America, in North America, don't even trace a cut, make, and trim. So you know, there's just so little knowledge out there. And I think that's part of the root of the problem. As you map out the supply chain for each piece of clothing, the story gets more complex. 
Contracts lead to subcontracts, and these layers make it hard to trace who's involved. That's where people are being exploited. According to UNICEF, it's often women and children. And on their website, it was hard to read that employers often prefer children for tasks like picking cotton because they're obedient and because they have small fingers which don't damage the crop. Our clothes are made in large part by hand, mostly by anonymous people, often with poor working conditions or by kids who shouldn't be working at all. Rachel is proving that fashion can be different. And if you look at the labels on Tonley's clothes, they're all signed by the name of a person who made them. And so I think that if you were to really connect to the fact that people that could be your aunts or sisters or brothers are sitting there and touching and sewing, you know, every seam on every garment that you make, I think people would feel a little bit more um, responsible to make sure that those people were being treated well. And so for me, you know, I don't want to have a negative message in my marketing. I'm not trying to make people feel bad. But I do feel that if you kind of see the people behind your clothes and you know a little bit about them and you, you know, you know that they're getting a good wage and that they got paid fairly to make the clothes that you buy, then I think you're going to be a lot more excited about those clothes, first of all. And you're going to care about those clothes more. You're going to take care of them. You're going to probably have them for longer. You won't waste them. And I think that, you know, if we as a society were more connected to those people, then we would probably be less likely to feel comfortable exploiting them. So let's step back to where this idea for Tonley began. Rachel was awarded a Fulbright grant to research fair trade artisans. So she traveled to Cambodia. While she was there, she met a group of women who were outcasts from their community. They struggled to find work, some because of being HIV positive. Rachel thought that while she was there, she could try to help them start a business. I thought, you know, maybe I'll help these women start up a business and then I'll leave in a year and I'll go back to the States and continue on doing a master's in art education or something like that. Eventually it became clear that they didn't actually want to run a business, but they kind of said, you know, well, we, we want to keep working with you. Um, how about you just stay in Cambodia and uh, you run the business and we'll work for you. <laughs> Rachel didn't have a business background, but since she was a little kid, she's always been drawn to fashion. I've been making clothing since I was probably in third grade. I made my first Halloween costume, and my grandmother taught me how to sew. Um, what was the costume? The costume was a Pippi Longstocking outfit. Oh, I love and it. It was made out of secondhand <laughs> clothes, which is so perfect. Yes, that's um, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, I mean, I'd always liked making clothing, but I knew that there were problems in the fashion industry. And in, in high school, I was, you know, sort of turned off by that. And I thought, I can't go into this industry. And I, I went to more of a fine art background. But I always was struggling to reconcile, you know, my love of textiles with the problems in the industry. And when I came to Cambodia, it was the first time I had this kind of light bulb moment which was that there's a different way to do this. And actually, you know, by me just sitting on the sidelines and saying, you know, fashion is bad, is not really helping because the fashion industry is not going anywhere anytime soon. It's, it's not going to cease to exist. And if we want it to change, we really have to get inside of it and change it from the inside out. So Rachel decided to start a business and launch her own fashion label. During her Fulbright research, she studied fair trade businesses. Some were successful, some were not. They sold crafts and traditional outfits, but... 
I didn't see anything that I would wear myself every day, you know, just just daily wear clothing that could also be made ethically. And now you're seeing a lot more of that on the market. But at the time in 2008, I mean, there was very little of like something that would be kind of comparable to, you know, an urban outfitters, but made in a much more conscientious way. Rachel set out to do something different and better. And this is Tone Lay. Besides making fashionable, everyday clothes, the whole process used to make them is zero waste. Here's how it works. Rachel and her team grab leftover fabric from garment factories before it reaches the landfill. And since you never know what you're going to get, her designs are customized based on what's available. The larger pieces are made into tops and pants or dresses. Smaller pieces are separated by colors and patched together to make new clothes. And the leftover material from these processes is cut into thin strips which are made into yarn and woven into new fabric like totes and scarves. And then there's still more. You're left with these tiny pieces and fuzz, and all of that is collected and combined with office paper to make recycled paper used for packaging and tags. So because of all of this, every year, Tonle is recycling over 22,000 pounds of fabric that otherwise would be thrown away. What makes this all happen is the people. And Rachel wants to make sure that they're treated well and paid fairly. So they earn salaries and benefits well above the local standard. Everyone gets training and they have opportunities to move into management. And some employees even consider their workplace and their team like a second family. As you can imagine, building a business like this has taken a lot of effort. Rachel poured herself into it living in Cambodia for years to get it started. So you chose to work in Cambodia. Um, How has that helped you and how has that been difficult? Hmm, Um, that's a great question. I mean, Cambodia is an amazing country. It's, you know, it has a very difficult past and a lot of sadness, but the people are very kind and always very welcoming and resilient, amazingly resilient. And some of the people that I work with, you know, they've been through such incredible atrocities and they're still so strong and happy. And I can't even imagine what I would be like if I had lived through a genocide or seen all my family members die. I mean, many of them have also experienced a lot of domestic abuse and spousal abuse and discrimination. And it just so many things and they're still such inspiring people. And I think like just working with my team and being around such inspiring women has been probably the best part of my time in Cambodia. Um, But I think that from a personal perspective, there were a lot of things that were really challenging about living there that kind of over time also got harder. In the beginning, it kind of everything was an adventure. And, you know, it's like, I can, I can do this. And I'm 22. And I can, you know, handle anything. And after a while, it kind of feels like, yes, you can handle anything, you can bear it, you can take it, but should you? And so from a physical perspective, I was actually very sick on a number of occasions, I was hospitalized, I I just wasn't, you know, physically like in a good place, which made me emotionally not in a good place. Some people told her to take a step back. People always tell you this, that if you don't help yourself, you're not going to be able to help other people. And you you hear that again and again, but it 
it takes some it's hard to really absorb that though I think especially when you're working in an environment where there are so many sad things happening around you and you feel like so responsible to make try to make things a little bit better did you feel like some level of guilt because of your privilege of where what your background is yeah absolutely I mean it's it's guilt and it's also like any time I would like for example let's say I wanted to have a gym membership that was $700 a year well how many people could I employ with that you know how many people could I employ every month with that much money or you know it's always kind of like well I need to do this thing for myself but if I do that thing for myself then that's gonna hurt these other people or not help these other people and so that would be what I was always, you know, comparing things to in my head. Yeah. At one point I had, you know, I was living in the back of my store. I had three women who had no home. One of them who had been sold by her mother at age 12 living in my room. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I, it was because I was like, you know, how could I say no when, you know, they need like the place more than me. But, you know, like I had no... I had no boundary and you can always find someone that needs you, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, there are so many needs. And if you constantly think like that, you will just get completely burned out. And so being able to, you know, have to turn off that side of you, it feels kind of horrible because you're like, I, am I just becoming desensitized? But no, like you just really have to recognize that you need to do things to take care of yourself. Um, And it took me a while to kind of get to a better place of balance with that. Rachel reflected on what she needed to be successful. And although it was a hard decision, after six years of living in Cambodia, she moved to San Francisco. Here, she's away from day-to-day manufacturing and operations, and she's able to focus on partnerships, sales, and growth. And so being here has allowed me to focus on more of that bigger picture stuff. And I think it's allowed us to grow the business in a smarter way. Rachel still travels to Cambodia regularly, but she's found a better balance. I kind of go back and forth to Cambodia probably three or four times a year. And when I'm there, it's great. Like, I love it. I have a great time. And I'm able to kind of be fully immersed for shorter periods of time. And then when I'm in San Francisco, it's like I have a more sort of balanced, healthier lifestyle where I can get outside, I can walk around, I can hike, I can, you know, and and do these things that are, like, good for me personally. The goal has stayed the same, building a world-class ethical fashion brand. But by knowing herself, Rachel adjusted how she approached it. And in doing so, she's helped to employ over 50 people and save tons of waste. This is a small business compared to the industry giants, but it demonstrates what's possible. Making fashionable clothes while being good to people and the environment. Clothes that create connections with labels that proudly bear their makers' names. I was so fortunate to have a phone call with Norma Bastidas, the world record holder for the longest triathlon. Hello, is this Norma? Yes, hello. Hi, Norma. It's Jackie, how are you? Yeah, I'm great. Perfect timing. I was just walking at the door. I picked up my son. By discovering who she is, Norma has done what many would consider impossible. Hers is such an inspiring story, but it's also difficult. 
Before we continue, I want to mention that we'll be talking about violence and human trafficking. Norma grew up in Mexico, the youngest of five. Her family had very little, and things got worse when her dad died. Norma was 11 at the time. Unable to support the family on her own, Norma's mom sent the kids to live with relatives. Norma went to live with and care for her grandfather, who was blind. And while she was living there, he repeatedly raped her. He was the patriarch of the family, and he was also supporting them financially. Norma's abuse became a family secret. It seemed like she couldn't escape this violence. As a teenager, she was kidnapped and raped by a gang. And Norma was even assaulted by people that she once considered her friends. She was blamed by others for this, and she blamed herself. But when she was 19, there seemed like a way out. A modeling agency offered her a job in Japan, and she accepted. When she got there, she was driven in luxury cars and fed expensive meals. The agency provided her with an apartment and took her passport. After a few days, she was brought to a nightclub filled with wealthy businessmen. She was told that all of the money spent on travel, her apartment, and food needed to be repaid. In exchange for that, her job was to entertain the men who went to the club, doing whatever they asked. Without money, language skills, or a passport, Norma had nowhere to go. Eventually, she paid off her debt, but was still stuck in Japan. After years of living there, she met a man from Canada. They got married, moved to Canada, had two sons, and got divorced shortly after that. Norma became a single mother like her mom was when she was little. But she was determined to provide her kids with more opportunities than what she had. So she went to school, earned a diploma, and got a well-paying job in sales. Things were finally working out. And then one day she got a call from her son's school. The teachers were worried that he may have broken his nose because he ran into a wall. Her oldest son, Carl, was 11 when he was diagnosed with cone rod dystrophy. He was going blind. It was an awareness moment. It was kind of one of those things that I thought, how can I have tried so hard? You know, I spoke three languages. I went back to university. I, every obstacle that I, I, I always confronted, the obstacles were, you know, in a positive manner. Norma felt as if she couldn't escape her past. She tried to balance work with caring for her son. He was afraid to go to school. But she ended up getting fired from her job. And uh, I just, I was crying a lot. I was so hurt. I was just felt abandoned by God or everything. And I just simply did not want my kids to hear me crying. So at three in the morning, when she couldn't sleep, Norma left her kids with her mom and started running. It's the way that I cope, that I could, you know, take some time to breathe. She wasn't a runner. She'd only gone a few times with her friends, and they'd tease her for being slow or having bad form. But this time for herself in the middle of the night was something she needed. You know, after a while, I, it just became a habit, and it became something that I looked forward to. Not just stress relief, but it was just kind of something that I just wanted to do, just for the fun of it. Norma felt empowered, and after a few months of running on her own, she went with one of her friends. And she was like, wow, you actually run rather well. And she just kind of challenged me. She said, if you qualify for Boston, I'll take you. I was turning 40, and I, I just needed that. My life was so out of control yeah. that I just wanted something that I could control. 
I was I, I could control aging up. I could control, you know, tying my shoes and, and having a schedule. So, so I did uh, six months after that, eight months after that, I, I ran my first marathon and qualified for Boston. Wow. And I just fell in love. <laughs> fell in love with the feeling. It was symbolic. It was something tangible. So I kind of felt like never again will I allow people to tell me what I can and cannot do. Because that's what I, I mean. Obviously, within eight months, you cannot train to be that fast. I had it. I just simply had not attempted because everybody told me I couldn't. Right. So I thought, okay, from now on, I'm just going to find the limits myself. Norma started running ultramarathons. Those are races over 100K, over 62 miles. She realized that she had this unique gift, and she wanted to use it to help others. So with her son in mind, she set out on a journey to raise awareness for the visually impaired, the 777 Run for Sight. Norma became the second person in history and the fastest female to run seven ultramarathons in all seven continents in seven months. She became a public figure and was interviewed on the news and even profiled as an extraordinary mom on Oprah's network. But it was under this spotlight that she started to question who she really was. And then all of a sudden, everybody wanted to know and give me interviews about what I do. And I just kind of felt fake because a lot of people saying, you're an amazing mother. And I thought, I'm doing what, I, you know, a mother would do. I mean, and I kept asking people, like, if you could cure your son from cancer if you could run 100 miles with you. And most people said, absolutely. So I felt really fake because they were calling me brave for, you know, taking all these challenges. And I just thought, no, I mean, you have no idea where I come from, and I'm terrified to tell this story. Norma faced one of her biggest fears, to openly say she's a survivor of sexual violence. She found a lot of resistance. Human trafficking was something that nobody wanted to talk about. This emboldened her, and she started planning a world record attempt in her fight against human trafficking, for herself and for survivors. She remembered sharing this idea with potential sponsors, but they kept pushing her to keep her focus on the world record, saying they didn't want to be involved with those women. And I just remember being so angry and standing up, and I said, I am one of those women, you know? And I laughed, and that's where I just went home and I said, and I thought, what record could I do that will bring the level of awareness? That I thought, I'm not just going to break it. I'm just going to break it and make sure that it stands for a long time because I want everybody to know who we are. At first, the idea was to find a record where she could run. But Norma wanted to do something even bigger. She planned to break the record for the world's longest triathlon. But there was one big problem. Norma didn't know how to swim. So she trained. She went to the pool every day until she could swim. And 18 months later, she raced from Cancun to Washington, D.C., following a known human trafficking route. Swimming was the hardest part. Her skin became raw from the ocean salt water and the stinging jellyfish. It was so painful. There was no relief. But, uh, but you know, pain is pain. It's it's hard, but it's not suffering, you know? I just keep telling myself, I have a choice to quit, you know? And there's a difference between that to the part of my life where I didn't have a choice. I didn't have a choice of saying, I had enough, I want to go home. When things were their most difficult, 
She thought about the victims and survivors she was racing for. And I thought, they have been given so many promises, and when they, those promises get broken, I will not break my promise. In 2014, after 65 days, Norma ended up nearly tripling the world record, over 3,700 miles, and she swam 122. For the final stretch, Norma ran with 11 young trafficking survivors, and they crossed the finish line together. Throughout a lot of her life, Norma was labeled, she was blamed, she was told she wasn't worthy. But she found her voice and her strength, and she's redefined what's possible. Self-reflection is one of those uncomfortable things. Looking at our strengths, our weaknesses, and goals and fears, we might not like what we see. It might mean admitting our limits or acknowledging our past, or realizing that we're not who we wish we were, or what other people expect us to be. And as humbling as it can be to know ourselves, finding who we really are gives us the ability to be our best. Thanks for listening to the show. If you want to learn more about Rachel or Norma, go to changemakerpodcast.com. And trafficking is in our cities, the country, suburbs, everywhere. If someone you know needs help, there are resources. In the U.S., you can text a message to BE FREE, 233-733. Music is by Lee Rosevier, Little Glass Men, Jazar, and Josh Harlan. If you like this episode, please tell one friend about it so more people can hear these stories. I'm Jackie Biederman. And you've been listening to Changemaker.